0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. We're experiencing social unrest, and we're certainly involved in a lot of political turmoil as we build up toward the presidential election in November. Part of all of the uncertainty that goes along with the times we're living in is financial uncertainty, financial instability. And that leads me to talk today on the podcast about this theme, financial security for ministry leaders, financial security for ministry leaders. How can you organize your finances in such a way that when difficult times come, like we're experiencing now in the culture, pandemic, social unrest, political turmoil, or when difficult times come to you personally, like medical setbacks, uh, accidents, home repairs, are other kinds of issues that rock our financial worlds, how can you find financial security as a ministry leader? Now, you might think, well, I'm not ever going to get there because in order to have financial security, I've got to make a lot more money. That's just simply not the case. Financial security is partly determined by how much money you make. No question about that. But it is not primarily determined by how much money you make. Now, let me say that again. Financial security is determined partly by how much money you make, but it is not determined primarily by how much money you make. It is determined primarily by making some very significant decisions, involving yourself in some very consistent practices, and then trusting God over a lifetime to provide for you. So let's start with foundations, for financial security for ministry leaders by understanding that our financial security rests on affirming that all we have belongs to God. All we have belongs to God. First of all, God owns everything by creation, and we see this from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 1-1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Revelation 4.11, the Bible says, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. So God owns everything, including everything that you claim to own, by creation. And that message is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. But beyond that, God owns you. And everything about you by redemption. In Ephesians 1-7 the Bible says in him we have redemption through his blood. And in 1 Corinthians 6:20, we read, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. God has purchased you back through redemption. He's bought you with a price, the price of the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have been doubly owned, or you are doubly owned by God. God owns you by creation. God owns you by redemption. And by extension, everything that you claim that you have, that you possess, that's in your name, that you hold title to, all of that is actually owned by God. Now, this is so foundational to financial security because if God owns it all, then we can trust him to take care of it, him to provide for us in every way that's necessary, and we can turn to him when we have financial setback because he's simply redistributing what he already owns rather than taking it so much from us. So financial security rests on affirming all we have belongs to God, Second. Financial security then rests on giving at least a tenth of your money back to God. Now, I know this is controversial for some. I don't believe in tithing, I believe in grace giving. Well, I'm gonna talk about that in just a minute. But if you'll just work with me for a moment, I wanna show you why once you affirm that all you have and all you control and all that's in your name and all to which you think you're entitled, all of it belongs to God, then You remind yourself of that regularly by giving a tenth of all the increase God allows you to have back to Him. Now, of course, the most well-known passage of Scripture about this is Malachi 3, starting in verse 7. The Bible says, Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do you, we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure." I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field and will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. In this passage of Scripture, we learn that the tenth, or the tithe, is is God's basic standard of giving. Now, the passage also says that we're to make the payments of the 10th and the contributions. So even in this passage, which is so often used to teach about the tithe, there is evidence that we're to give even beyond the tithe. We're to give a 10th or more of our income back to God as a reminder that God owns everything, everything comes from him, and that we're responsible to him for all that we have. Now, Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I don't believe in tithing. I believe in grace giving. The New Testament talks about uh, giving out of grace and giving uh, generously and giving hilariously. And certainly it does say all of that. But let's understand some consistency of interpretation. Grace always exceeds law. Grace fulfills law, meaning not that it displaces it, but it fills it full and overwhelms it. So, when you apply that in the area of, of, uh, for example, marriage uh, and divorce and uh, lust and things like that, you know, Jesus said, for example, uh, you've heard it said that uh, a person who commits adultery, but I say, or not to commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust for a person in your heart. Uh, Jesus said you've heard it said don't commit murder but I'm telling you don't even think evil of other people in your heart so grace always goes beyond law it fulfills it in the sense that it fills it full and overwhelms it not that it sets it aside now apply the same thing in the area of money I also do not believe that giving a tenth is our legalistic responsibility before God. I believe that our gracious responsibility before God is to give more than a tenth as an example of grace giving back to him. So if you tell me, well, I don't believe in tithing, I would say, well, I don't really believe in tithing either. But if you say, I don't believe in tithing, therefore I can give one or 2% and call that adequate, I would say, I do not agree with that understanding of Scripture. Because grace giving always exceeds legalistic giving. It, displaces, it fulfills it, not displaces it. It overwhelms it. And so I believe that God has called us to give a tenth or more as a contribution back to him on a regular basis to remind us that everything we have originates with God, everything we have belongs to God, and everything we have is under God's direction. Now this passage of Scripture reveals two ways that giving is a source of financial security. The first is that giving assures you of God's provision. I love this phrase from Malachi. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. When we give, God opens the floodgates of heaven and gives back to us in ways we could have never imagined. I could tell you 25 stories if we had enough time on the podcast that would come to mind about how God has provided for my wife and I and our family over the years. There have been many times when we have sat down and looked at our bank account and said, This makes no sense. We make this amount of money, we give this amount of money away, we have this many bills that we have to pay. And somehow it all worked out, and we even had money left over. That makes no sense. Look, the math just doesn't work. But God somehow provides. God provides. He pours out from the windows of heaven blessing until there's no more need. One of my children one time said to me, I don't understand why I have to give a tithe. I said, well, let me explain it to you. And so I gave them a miniature version of this presentation today. And when I finished, he said, well, I just don't see uh, that that it really works that way. Uh, You know, I give my tithe, but I don't see God pouring out the windows of heaven and taking care of every one of my my, uh, needs. And I said, okay, well, just stop tithing. See what happens. He said, well, what do you think will happen? And I said, well, I know one thing that's going to happen. I'm going to shut off your supply because I am the windows of heaven in your life. And my son said, okay, let's back up a second here. (laughs) He said, I think I'll keep giving. I said, that's a good decision, son, because right now I'm the primary vehicle through which God pours blessing into your life. And one of the reasons I'm so generous toward you is because I know that you're generous toward God and toward others. That's the way it works, not just in families, but that's the way it works in God's economy. When you are a committed giver, when you give a tenth and more than a tenth of your income away to God, he notices from heaven, he opens the windows of heaven, and he pours out blessing in your life until there's no more need. I've heard it said a million times. I've said it a thousand times. You've probably heard it. You can't outgive God, and that is always true. And so a foundation for financial security is giving a tithe of your income or more away so that God will replenish your supply and take care of you in every way that's needed. And then second, this passage says that a tithe also assures you of God's protection. I love verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you. Now they use an agricultural motif here. I will rebuke the devourer so he will not ruin the produce of your land or your vine in the field and it will not produce fruit. In other words, God says, I'm going to keep bad things from happening to you. I often wonder about the car wreck I didn't have and the disease I didn't get and the breakdown in my, fam- in my, uh, in my uh, household equipment that didn't take place. I don't even know all the ways that God is protecting me on a daily basis. But the Bible says God rebukes the devourer. He keeps evil away from us and protects us in invisible ways we don't even see. So... We started by saying financial security for ministry leaders rests on the conviction that God owns everything, both creation and redemption. All aspects of our lives, including everything we claim to own and have title to, really belong to God. And we symbolize the the conviction of that on a regular basis by giving back to God a tenth or more of everything he gives us as a representation that it all belongs to God. And when we do that, The Bible says that God does two wonderful things for us. One, he provides for us by pouring blessing on us out of heaven until there's no more need. And then secondarily, he protects us. He rebukes the devourer from us. He keeps evil things from happening from us. And in invisible ways, we don't even see God takes care of us. Now, a next step in finding financial security as a ministry leader is making and using a spending plan. Now, this is called a budget. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless only becomes poor. The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit. Now, I've been living on a budget for 40 years that I've been married. We make a budget every year. Uh, We lay out our spending plan for the next 12 months and think about what that means and what that's going to look like and what we're going to do, Uh, and that's all great. And then we have to adjust it month to month and sometimes quarter to quarter to make it work for us over a year's period of time. But we make a plan because the plans of the diligent do what? They certainly lead to profit. Now, making a budget is an onerous task for some people because they don't want To put any controls on their spending. But that's a misunderstanding of what budgeting is all about. Budgeting does put controls on your spending, but more importantly, it puts positive controls on your spending because it directs your spending where you really want it to go. So that you are spending money on things that are really important to you and that are really a priority for you and that really make a difference in life as you want to live it. That's why one family, will budget more for entertainment than another family because that's more of a value for that family. Uh, One family will budget more for their house and one will budget more for their car and one will budget more for travel and one will budget more for a certain kind of food because they really want to eat organic. Uh, That's all fine. Uh, These things are all matters of preference and choice among believers and we understand that. So there is no one budgeting plan that has to fit all. But a budgeting plan simply enables you to sit down and say, What's most important in our family? That goes number one, and we spend our money on that first. Now what's number two? We spend number two, our money on that. Number three, number four, number five. And eventually you're going to get down to the point you run out of money. But that's okay. Everyone runs out of money. I don't ever get to do everything I want to do. But when I get down to the point where I've run out of money and I can't fund anything else, then I look at those items and say, you know what, they're just not as important. They're not number one on my list. They're number 10 on my list. And because they're, not, they're number 10 and they don't get done, it's not nearly as painful as if number one didn't get done. You see, budgeting is a means of control. But it doesn't so much prevent you from spending money as it forces you and helps you to spend money on things that are the most important to you. The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit. Now, this might mean profit in that you make money, but more importantly, I think it leads to profit, meaning that you spend your money on what's profitable for you. So if you highly value your home or you highly value your car, or you highly value organic food or you highly value going on trips or you highly value your education or you highly value a church building program, whatever is highest in your values right now is where you're going to spend your money and you'll feel that's profitable because you've used it in the best way imaginable and therefore you're profiting from it. So the plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit. But anyone who is reckless... Only becomes poor. Reckless simply means in this context, spending money in an undisciplined fashion, just whatever comes up you pay for in a in a routine way and not really thinking about where your money's going. So we want to avoid that and we want to instead be diligent in our use of funds. Now, financial security comes from making a spending plan or making a budget for a number of different reasons. It, some I've already enumerated, but here's a few more. When you do this, you make a plan to live within your means and on a margin. And so a budget also gives you a sense of well-being and relieves a tremendous amount of stress in your life. And then a budget also helps you to live out your priorities. As I've already said, you're prioritizing what is most important to you, and you're spending money on that. And as you work your way down the list, of course, the lesser priority items don't get funded. And that's fine. You may not like it that you can't do everything you want to do, but you will be satisfied because you've been able to do the things that mattered most to you. Now, a lot of this you already know, but let me tell you just one more thing about budgeting that really takes a lot of pressure off of us. And that is, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to make a budget, and it's going to be my budget for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to be able to revise it, and every time I violate it, I'm going to feel guilty, or I'm going to feel like I failed. And then the budget's not going to be workable because things are always going to be changing in my life, and therefore, I'm just not going to do it. Well, let me encourage you to think about it differently. Uh, If you're just starting out in the area of budgeting, think about making a three-month budgeting plan. As you get a little better at this, you'll be able to make a six-month budgeting plan. Now, I'm at the place where I'm making a 12-month budgeting plan. Where every year in the middle of November, my wife and I sit down and we talk about, okay, what do we want to do this coming up year? What are our top priorities? And we talk about them and we list them. And those change every year. But we lay out our priorities and we, uh, we create a budget that reflects what we really need to do right now in our lives and we, we lay that out. Now, because we've been married for a long time and because we have been doing this for a long time, we also are able to budget some things that have flexibility even within them. So, for example, one of our priorities every year is to give to our church, and so we put that at the top of the list. Another priority is to give to the seminary, so we put that on the list. And then another priority for us is to give throughout the year to some other missional needs that will arise, but we don't always know what those are. So we set aside an amount of money to give to missional needs in our budget, not really knowing what they're going to be. So then when a young person asks us to help send them on a mission trip or when some special need comes up in an organization that we support or when an opportunity arises with a missionary that we care about, we have money in our budget for that and we can direct it toward that need as it comes up through the year. And you say, well, what if something doesn't come up? Well, we just set that, aside, that money aside and save it till the next month and sort of let it accrue, if you will, so that we have it to give away at the appropriate time. So a budget, uh, if you're just starting out, make a three-month budget or a six-month budget or a 12-month budget if you've been at it for a while. And even within that budget, design some lines or some allocations that are flexible. So that you're able to say, uh, we don't know exactly where we're going to give this money or spend this money, but we're, we're going to do that. And not just go on giving, but on things like home repair. You may say, you know, we, we want to we fix our house up a little bit this coming up year. And we're qu- not quite sure what we want to do, whether we want to paint the living room or buy new patio furniture or whether we want to get carpet for the downstairs. You know, we, we're going to think about that a little more. But we know that we need to set aside some money for just home improvement. And so set that aside in your budget and let it accrue month by month as you set the money aside. And you may not know everything you want to do at the beginning of the year, but you know you want to do something in that area, and that's a pretty high priority. So you fund that in that regard with some flexibility, but still with the item or the idea or the area uh, in your budget. Well, uh, this isn't a financial seminar. It's a seminar or it's a podcast on try to find financial security. So number one, Financial security comes from affirming that God owns everything by creation and redemption. Second, we're going to give back to God at least a tenth of our income every month to remind us that God owns everything by redemption and creation and to assure us of God's provision and protection. And then as God gives us provision and protection, we're going to make a diligent plan for how to use the balance of everything we have, and we're going to call that plan a budget. And we're going to work that plan diligently because the Bible says, diligent plans lead to profit. Now, number four. The fourth step for financial security for ministry leaders is to invest in a get-rich-slow scheme. To invest in a get-rich-slow scheme. Now, you know what get-rich-fast schemes are. They're everywhere. If you don't know what those are, I'm sure a Nigerian prince will be glad to introduce you to them. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, 11, The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies lacks sense. The one who works his land, in other words, the one who puts effort into something that's going to pay off over the long haul, will have plenty. But whoever chases fantasies lacks sense. You want to chase fantasies? Go to Vegas, go to Reno, or go down to the closest 7-Eleven and buy a lottery ticket. That's chasing fantasies. But if you invest in a get-rich-slow scheme, over a lifetime, you're going to see the results. Now I know how hard this is when you're very young in ministry leadership. Uh, I don't mind telling you that when I was, up until the time I was 30, I didn't save any money for retirement or any money for anything that was long-term. Up until I was 30, I was trying to put every money, dollar I could find toward buying at my first house and we got that done. And then I was trying to just basically survive with very limited income in my early ministry assignments and responsibilities. And so I'm not telling you, hey, you're 21, why aren't you saving for retirement? I know it's hard to get started. But by the time I was 30, I'd started to put aside a little bit of money each month. And then eventually my church started doing that. And then, of course, I went to work for the Northwest Baptist Convention as a church planter and then for the convention itself. And in those roles, they were making a Guidestone contribution on my behalf for my retirement. So I'm grateful for that. But in the beginning it was really hard and i and i didn't get started as early as i wish i had but i got started as early as i could so you're saying well when should i start saving for long-term needs like college educations and retirement and long-term medical care when should i start saving for those things as soon as possible that's when you say well i'm already 40 and i haven't been get started tomorrow i'm 21 should i start now if you can now, any way you can start saving for a long term. And you say, but I'm only putting aside 10 or 20 or $50 a month, and that doesn't seem like very much. Listen, it isn't very much. But here's the beauty of compounding interest and compounding investments put a little in now and wait 10, 20, 30, or 40 years, and you start seeing unbelievable results. So, no. Investing a little bit of money along the way doesn't seem like it's going to make that much difference, but it makes a huge difference when you get out there many, many years. Now, you may say, well, I don't believe in saving for the future. I believe God will take care of me. That's irresponsible. Some of the hardest phone calls I've ever had were with pastors who reached their 70s or 80s who'd worked all their lives but had never saved anything for their futures. And they called me, especially when I worked for the Northwest Baptist Convention, and said, hey, can the convention help me? I said, what do you mean? Well, can the convention provide me a retirement income? And the answer was, no, we can't do that. We don't have the resources for that, and that's not why people are giving money through the cooperative program. I'm sorry, we just have to say no. It was hard conversations, but they happened more often than you might think. Why? Because some people said they weren't going to save and God would take care of them funny when they called God's number, it rang on my desk. There's something wrong about that. So save in a get rich slow scheme by putting aside a little bit of money every month, just a little bit, and trusting that over a long period of time, it will turn into some financial resource that will sustain you over the long haul. Save, invest, wait. That's the strategy. Financial security involves investing in a get-rich-slow scheme. Well, here are four steps to financial security for ministry leaders. First, affirm that all you have belongs to God by creation and redemption. Second, remind yourself often that all you have belongs to God by giving him a tenth and more in regular contributions out of what he provides you. When you do this, the Bible promises that God will provide you provision and protection along the way. Then when he provides you provision and protection, make a diligent spending plan called a budget to allocate the 90% you have left over every month and to use it in priority fashion for what really makes a difference to you. And when you do that, you'll be using your resources profitably to accomplish what you think is most important in, our, in your life and in our world. And then to care for yourself over the long haul, invest in a get-rich-slow scheme. Save, invest, and wait. And start as early as you can. And I'm not trying to pressure those of you that are in your 20s that are listening to this, but if you can start then, even all the better. I wasn't able to, but I finally got started when I was about 30, and it certainly made a big difference now that I've been doing it for these 30-plus years. Now, those are the four foundations for financial security for ministry leaders. But I want to give you a fifth one. Now, I hope that none of these things are a part of your life as a ministry leader, but if you choose to take this podcast and turn it into a teaching uh, tool for uh, laypersons particularly or for new believers, then you need to add this fifth step to financial security. And that is financial security is strengthened when you avoid what I call sin taxes. Sin taxes. Proverbs 12, 3 says, Man cannot be made secure by wickedness. A lot of sin costs a lot of money. And when you can participate in these sinful activities, I call them sin taxes because they will drain your resources. Gambling. Gambling leads to loss financial resources. You say, yeah, but some people win. Okay, here's what you do. Google, Google Las Vegas, photo, and see what that city looks like. And then look at those hotels and tell me who's winning. Look at the casinos and tell me who's winning. You think the gamblers are winning? <laughs> it ain't happening. No. Gambling always results in loss. You will lose resources. Immorality. Think of all the costs of immorality. The medical costs of recovering from disease and from the stress that it creates. The cost of the divorce when the money is split, the house is lost, the alimony has to be paid the cost for counseling to overcome the damage that you've done in, this, in your spouse's life and in the lives of your children, think about the cost of immorality. And then the cost of adultery that goes along with that. I've just mentioned alimony, child support, legal expenses, attorneys, everything that happens when divorce takes place. And then what about destructive habits like using alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and other things that cost money that do damage to your body that not only cost money when you do them, But they cost you money and lost productivity, lost wages, and they cost you money and lost medical care and and, and increased medical premiums and all that goes along with that. So I call these sin taxes. If you're gambling, participating in morality, leading to adultery, that leads to divorce, or if you're participating in destructive habits, all of these things take our money. They take money while you're participating in them, they take money while you're recovering from them, they take money to pay for the damage done by them, they take money. They jack up our insurance rates. They take money out of our pockets to pay medical bills. They take money out of our pockets to pay gambling debt. They take money out of our pockets to pay for counselors and for recovery programs and for all the things associated with sin taxes. If you're a ministry leader, you've probably already crossed the line and moved a lot of this stuff out of your life. I hope you have. I hope you moved it all out of your life. But if you're listening to this podcast and any of this this stuff is a part of your financial plan or a part of your financial picture, I can tell you it is draining you financially and it will lead to your financial ruin. So financial security for ministry leaders, it is partially determined by how much money you make, but it is primarily determined by some other choices you make. Choose to trust God as your creator and sustainer. Choose to give back to him as a reminder that all you have belongs to him. As you give back to him, enjoy his provision and protection. Plan to use his protection and provision wisely through diligent planning expressed in a budget and then get invested in a get-rich-slow scheme to take care of your long-term needs. Avoid, sin, taxes to strengthen your financial security. I hope this podcast helps you during this time of uncertainty that we're living in right now and I hope you'll use it to teach others how to find financial security. Do it well as you lead on.